Well, happy Sunday, everyone. This is Matt Gurney of The Line. Our podcast is coming to you a little late this week. There were so many news developments late in the week that Jen Gerson and I decided that we needed to hold off our usual weekending dispatch and basically let things play out a little bit, see how they settled down. On Saturday, we were able to finally sit down and have a conversation about the week that was and the week that will continue to have ramifications. We talked RCMP, we talked abortion, we talked the state of the conservative movement in this country, and why we think things might be about to get a little bit bonkers is the term we're using. Stay tuned. This is The Line's latest edition of the Experimental Podcast. So Friday was a bit of a week. Um, Jen and I had been talking earlier this week, and this is boring internal stuff, but we'd been noting a reader engagement is still is still actually surprisingly high, but it has come down. And you know what? This is expected. This is normal in summer. It every year. Yeah. yeah. It's the summer. People check out. Um, the other thing we noticed was that the pace of news developments had slowed down a little bit, and we're not getting as many freelancer articles coming into us. We're taking the first two weeks of July off. We've always said that it's good timing. It gives people a chance to recharge. They come back in a couple of weeks, and they've got a, uh, ideas of a few things to write about. And then Friday. So, <laughs> so Jen, let me walk you through. And I, I have not done firsthand reporting on this. Uh, I'm not covering the Nova Scotia thing uh, directly or the RCMP uh, controversy. Yeah, it's, it's actually actually a really big story that is not getting as much coverage as it deserves. Yeah. Is is actually just the truth, and the, our bandwidth is so full here, right? What I did last night was I used uh, the reporting of others. So shout out to the Halifax Examiner and CBC Nova Scotia uh, with, a, with a big, big assist by the National Post, um, which had a key piece of information that made the timeline fit. Let me just tell you what the timeline is, and then I'll tell you what we can conclude from that. So okay. there are the, the reason this is so complicated, Jen, and people were saying to me, make sense of this for me online. So I put out a Twitter thread last night that is purely timeline. There's two timelines unfolding next to each other, and it's hard to keep them straight. So I've literally written them down here in notes in front of me. So the, the, the important thing, all of this starts on April 18th, 2020. That's when the attacks begin. The attacks are arson and shooting. They continue overnight into the next day. The next day, April 19th, the shooter is killed. Okay. This is important. By April 24th, Six days after it started, five days after it ended, and this is where the National Post came through with that key bit of information, Prime Minister Trudeau and the PMO is briefed by the National Security Advisor on details of the attacks, including the firearm types that were used. The National Post has that via access to information. The Prime Minister and the PMO and the Cabinet knew what guns were used six days after the attacks began. That was April 24th. On April 28th, there is a teleconference between local RCMP commanders and the national RCMP commander, uh, Commissioner Brenda Lucky. According to the notes taken by the local commander, Brenda Lucky is angry because the local RCMP has not released those firearms details yet. And I have to repeat, the RCMP knows what they are. They know what the guns are. The prime minister knows what the guns are. The point of contention isn't that the locals haven't told the feds. It's that they haven't 
publicly disclose this. The reason the locals say they hadn't done this is because they were working with law enforcement in the United States to run these guns down. These guns had been smuggled in. They were working with American authorities to get the guys in the U.S. who had done this. Lucky, Commissioner Lucky, according to the notes taken, and this is on April 28th, tells the locals that she wants this information out because she has promised Public Safety Minister Bill Blair and Prime Minister Trudeau, his office, that this information will be out because there's a gun control announcement coming. Three days after this meeting, the Liberals announced new gun control measures. So that's... There's the follow-up from the CBC article about... So that's the second timeline. (laughs) Okay. So that's, that's the timeline of the controversy itself. The government knows what the guns are by April 24th. Mm-hmm. Lucky is telling the locals to hurry up and announce it publicly on April 28th. Despite the fact that actually risks the investigation. Yes. The liberals make their announcement on May 1st. Here's the timeline of where things get really interesting. October 2020, uh, that is six months after the shooting, the public inquiry, the Mass Casualty Commission or the MCC, is uh, ordered by a joint provincial federal order. In June of 2021, the MCC subpoenas documents, lots of documents, right? Thousands and thousands of pages. These include the notes handwritten by the local commander who was in that meeting with uh, Commissioner Lucky. On February of 2022, four months ago, the MCC receives thousands of pages of documents. This include the handwritten notes of the local commander. Three weeks ago, end of May, further documents are handed over to the MCC. These further documents include four pages of handwritten notes by the local commander that had not been previously given to the MCC. Those four pages of notes are the meeting where Commander uh, Commissioner Lucky allegedly pressured the locals to release the information. Tuesday of this week, the MCC discloses that there are allegations of this meeting and files a complaint that the feds had withheld information. Friday, yesterday, when you and I filmed this, the federal government acknowledges that it had withheld the information. It says they held it on grounds of reviewing the documents to see if they contained privileged information. It acknowledges now that it should not have done that and that it should at the very least have informed the MCC that there was uh, that there were documents that had been held back pending a, another layer of review. So let me walk you through. Okay, first of all, Commissioner Lucky has to go absolutely doesn't understand her role yeah period just doesn't uh, doesn't understand her role this is also the classic example of even if it's not true or even if it's defensible in her mind the appearance of a conflict of collusion between the head of the rcmp and the federal government there's 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 it's a it's a clear understanding how under under the highest degree of pressure and strain she just doesn't understand um natural boundaries and her role within the democratic system like it's it's, just it's it's just not it's non-recoverable 
like this, this is career ending. Um, yeah. Someone needs to tell her that. And if she won't walk the plank, she needs to be pushed. But yeah. Commissioner Lucky's career has ended. She has in a statement acknowledged that she handled the meeting badly. It was apparently a brutal meeting. People were in tears. She says she regrets that, but she says, I would never interfere in an investigation. But you did. Guess, guess what, Jen? I'm, <laughs> I'm young enough to remember I did not have sex with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Like, you knew he was in trouble when he had to clarify which woman he was denying having sex with, but I don't want to yeah. go. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole here. Lucky's done. She either needs to resign or be fired. Yeah, I, no, don't know I, I, I have I have empathy for her that in the highest stress possible situation, she failed, but like she failed. She failed. Yeah, this is not recoverable. Yeah. So what I don't know is if it goes any higher than her. And I'm being very honest with you. I'm being honest with the viewers and the listeners. I don't know. This timeline is not a smoking gun of any involvement any higher than Commissioner Lucky. There's nothing there. But if you've that got Commissioner gun. Lucky saying straight up that let me Bill Blair was telling her to do this. I mean, that's that implicates it. Heck no, see, it's more nuanced than that. And this is why let, let me lay out the good news scenario for the liberals. Let me lay out the bad news scenario for the liberals. The good news scenario is Lucky was freelancing. The RCMP looked bad after Nova Scotia. Maybe she was desperate to curry favor with the boss. Maybe she got it into her own head. Hey, maybe we can help your announcement to earn some brownie points. Maybe she just wanted to suck up for the boss on general principles. Maybe she worried her agency was going to get crushed in the, in the, the fallout and wanted to earn some brownie points. Maybe Blair made some innocuous comment, right? Like, oh man, it'd be great if this info comes out and she jumped on it maybe these like that's this is the good news scenario for the liberals in this scenario the document with with closure is an awkward coincidence it's possible nonsense pardon me too many coincidences i agree but in fairness i hey, lay you're, that you're, you're 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 playing devil's advocate i get it but like I'm just being as fair as i can sure it, it is possible that this goes no higher than lucky and everything around it that makes it look worse is a coincidence the other possible scenario, and I'm laying this out again as speculation, is that the liberals knew on April 24th what the guns were. They decided they were going to make an announcement, and they wanted the locals to prep the field for them by releasing the info. They were angry that they hadn't done it. They leaned on Lucky overtly, covertly, I don't know and told her in some way or another to get that message out to the locals. She did so, the locals pushed back, and the liberals said, to hell with it, we'll make the announcement anyway. If that's the case, even And then if, work to cover up the whole... And, and then, yeah, and then in the bad scenario, they also realized, wow, it would like how can we hold... They probably knew they couldn't hold the documents forever, but in the bad scenario, they held them as long as they could. That's speculative, but here's the thing. Does it sound like something the liberals wouldn't do? No, in fact, they have a history of doing exactly this. That's the problem. So even in the bad scenario, which is speculative and I can't prove it. But it's the more, the bad scenario is the more plausible scenario. And, and it fits, fits with the a pattern, pattern of behavior. behavior. Yeah. So like, I, so now, now when it comes to pattern of behavior, the problem is that the last time the liberals did this at a big scale was the SNC scandal and they didn't really pay for it. So why would they pay for it this time? They won't probably. I think okay. the timing is amazing. It's late June when this comes out. Yeah. If Lucky falls on her sword in summer, then this whole thing goes away by fall. 
there will be parliamentary hearings about, about this. Uh, the, the local RCMP commander, Darren Campbell, and Brenda Lucky have both been called to testify in July. So we might learn more then. And hey, who knows? There might be leaks or bombshells that come out. Well, and if, if Lucky if Lucky knows that she's done, there's a very good chance that she will basically be killed. Maybe. Why not? So anyway, uh, I've written this up. Lucky has to go, and we need an investigation to see if it stops with her. Maybe it did. But I think this looks and feels and smells like something that goes beyond her. I can't prove it. But the liberals just can't, like I said, in, in the dispatch blurb, which I'm writing now, I make the comparison to the Emergencies Act. You can't give these guys the benefit of the doubt. They just haven't earned it. This is exactly the kind of thing they would do. Like, you know, this, like, this, this is one thing that I find so frustrating about like the true and on crowd is like, and with Canada, generally speaking, is that like, I'm sorry, but if the conservatives had done this, people would be marching on Parliament Hill. Like, I, just the lat and rightly you know what i mean like like yeah. like you know like the the problem is that we like as of the electorate keeps on giving the, the liberals the benefit of the doubt because they mean well even mm -hmm. when their pattern of behavior consistently demonstrates lack of ethical act action and conduct um and they just they it's just unwarranted it's just fundamentally unwarranted and when, when conservatives are in power they are rightly subject to, to skepticism yep. and scrutiny because people don't trust their intentions so people suddenly become really skeptical of government and like it's okay to start good. pointing it which is good that's what you want that's healthy to be as skeptical of the liberals as they are of the conservatives i'm not 100%. asking them to be less that's skeptical all that's all i'm asking for i think yeah. i want to go back to a system of government where people are skeptical of government intentions that is excellent I want that. That is healthy and normal and good in a democratic society. We should not be giving one party a pass. It is. In, uh, you're right. It is interesting to see there, there's two narratives forming up in defense of uh, the liberals here. One of them is that the whole thing is a misogynist purge of Lucky herself because the RCMP doesn't like having a female of commissioner. Course. Yeah, sure. The other one that the National Post killed on Saturday morning when uh, I was Ryan Tamilty, a great reporter in the Ottawa Bureau. Um, mm -hmm with the timeline of the liberals having known the guns by the 24th the other line of defense which is the liberals were just demanding information they ought to have had no they had it yeah that what they were pushing for was for you me and thee to have it yeah. and that would have that would have prepped their announcement so i don't know um let let's talk about the other i mean so okay i've written this up lucky's got to go and we need an investigation to see if it goes higher this is this is a serious, incredible allegations of political collusion between the federal executive and a law enforcement agency for political purposes. Yeah, and putting a and putting an investigation in jeopardy in, in the process. Yeah, a Great. mass Good murder job. investigation into the deaths right. of twenty two innocent Canadians. Right. Cool. Over All right. To, in order to pass a gun control control legislation that was purely performative and did no fucking good. And would not have prevented the right. incident. Yeah. Super great. Well done, everyone. Well, like I said, the like the one thing the liberals cannot say in their defense is, well, we would never take a tragedy and exploit it for political purposes. The handgun freeze rolling out days after Uvalde. Come on. Like all I'm asking is to be as skeptical of any government as you would be of conservatives. And yet I seem to be asking too much. Uh, Jen, I hesitate to even ask this, but I guess we got to look south of the border. Uh, Friday morning, just after 10 o'clock, I had just begun my radio show and we had a lot of like light end of week summer content planned. We were going to be talking about the metaverse. We we're going to be talking about a new Netflix comedy special. Doo -doo -doo. 
look at my phone. Roe v. Wade is gone. Yeah. So this is really just, I mean, I'm kind of on the Roe v. Wade file because I'm the token woman of this organization. <laughs> and what a woman. And what a woman indeed. Um, so basically I wrote about uh, the original leaked um, majority uh, draft of the court's opinion written by uh, Alito. Um, and I wrote a column about just the leaked draft. And, and I thought it was a good column and people generally identified with it. And it was not me saying Alito's position is sound. It was me saying, look, here's the point that Alito's actually trying to make. And here's the implications for broader democratic society that like a, a lot of people on the left have been putting a lot of their faith into to the idea of a technocracy that would be able to essentially decide value judgments, um, kind of circumventing the democratic process. Um, now, I thought that Alito's reasoning had some pretty glaring flaws as well. Um, and I was, I didn't get into those because I'm like, I kind of want to see where this plays out. Like, we didn't know at that point whether or not this particular uh, ruling would stand. Um, but now the full judgment is out and full judgment, of course, includes the dissent. And so I'm going to write a blurb just based on the dissent, because I've already written essentially the, the crucial points in, in, in the main piece. The dissent, yeah. by the way, is clearly written for posterity. This is a dissent that is, is, is obviously written by people who understand that future generations will be looking at this case and, and examining this case and examining the, court, the, 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 the rationale of this case. The dissent is, to put it mildly, scathing. It is so vicious at points that I'm not sure that the court is going to be able to work together in a cordial way. Like it's, it's, it's pointed. Um, it's, it's just, it's just relentless. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, I think the dissent very ably dissects the majority's um, opinion. Um, so I think that there's a couple of things that are crucial to point out from the dissent. One is that uh, it points out that the rationale and the logic that the majority is used here uh, creates this opening or this opportunity for a truly dystopian type um, uh, uh, legal system around these issues. Yep. It, it argues that- the Constitution that, doesn't explicitly establish it, it's not constitutional. That's right. Yep. That's essentially it. Um, but essentially what, what it, it opens up the possibility for like, like a lot of the, the majority is claiming, well, look, we're just we're just devolving this to states' rights and this is a democratic decision and we live in a democracy and fine. The minority points out or the dissent points out that no, you've actually opened the door for a nationwide ban that could absolutely pass muster if you if you roll back these precedents. Um, so this isn't just a state by state problem or situation. The dissent does a really good job like laying out exactly what the real consequences of this are going to be, particularly for women who are poor um, and can't afford to move to different states in order to get abortion services. The dissent um, lays out just some truly horrifically draconian um, uh, scenarios in which certain states are going to pass, for example, laws against pregnant women traveling, um, laws for pregnant women registering, uh, persecution of miscarriages um, and, uh, you know, laws that aren't reasonable 15, 20, 12 week bans that are in line with what we see in other parts of the world, but instead full out bans at, at point of conception or six week bans, which is uh, the same as. So it lays out some pretty draconian scenarios um, that are within the realm of possibility now um, with the pullback of Roe versus Wade. The other crucial point that I think that the dissent gets into is um, A, is that 
even if the majority claims that none of this will affect same-sex marriage, none of this will affect contraceptives, the logic and rationale used by the court to get to this point it can go after assur- that next. Yeah, essentially. Like, why why wouldn't it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, look, if, if, if you're going to claim the 14th Amendment only grants liberties as those liberties were understood in 1868. And specifically enumerated, yeah. And specifically enumerated, then why wouldn't it, why wouldn't you go after these other types of rights precedents? Like, like the, the, the logic and rationale is very clearly right there. You could roll back um, uh, uh, laws against interracial marriage using this this rationale. You could roll back laws against contraceptives, or you could roll back uh, all of these types of rights that have been have been considered foundational to American liberty and 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 the progress of jurisprudence. Um, the other point that it makes that I think is really interesting is that uh, the majority claims that like there's no history or tradition of, of protection of abortion as a right, and the dissent totally obliterates the plates that and says, you know, basically we've had this for 50 years. The idea that there is no that, that because that, that this doesn't count as a tradition because it didn't go back to 1868 is nuts. And also, you know, Roe versus Wade was part and parcel with a line of precedents that gave individual um, uh, in, people in America more uh, control over their bodily autonomy and freedom to form families. But I think the really crucial point and the, the point where I thought Alito's re- reasoning was absolutely the weakest and the point where I think that the dissent just blows it apart and destroys it into smithereens is in its treatment of the doctrine of stare decisis. Now, I am not a learned individual. I am just a dilettante. I'm a nobody. But stare decisis in the American system basically says that you don't just go overturning precedents willy-nilly. You need specific legal rationales to justify overturning previous court's decisions. And there's a reason why you need those specific legal rationales, because it, and you can't just say, well, they got it wrong, so therefore we're going to overturn it. Like, that's not enough. Like, the fact that Roe versus Wade was a flawed legal decision is not enough to overcome the, 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 the um, expectations of stare decisis. And the reason why that is, is because if that were the case, if that were enough, then the entire legal system of America could change on the whim of the personalities of the judges on the court. Right, like there, you need you need to have in a, in a system that governed by the rule of law. You need to have something resembling continuity. You need to have citizens have faith that the laws aren't going to change on a total whim. Yeah, because because a majority of this or that's been put on the court. You need a center what, of gravity. You need a center of gravity, yeah. which means you have to have a fundamental respect for the precedents that that came before. That doesn't mean you can never overturn previous precedents, but there needs to be a specific case. There needs to be a change in fact or a change in law or fundamental shift in society so great that, that, that you know, um, the, the, the famous overturning of, of the Brown versus the Board of Education, so this is the segregation law, would be the classic example of this. So like th- these are very, very rare examples where you have a Supreme Court overturning a case and they have, they're, they're grounded in, in a kind of a rational argument that something fundamental changed that makes the previous precedent untenable or unworkable. But in the Roe versus Wade case, there was no change. There was no change in law. There was no change in attitudes. There was no change in, in, in fact, nothing changed. The only thing that changed was that it, there, were, there was a majority of conservatives on the court. I, I like shouldn't, I, 
I'm sorry, I just want to make clear to any viewers, I wasn't laughing there because of what you're saying, but I could totally hear the sound of your husband grabbing your son as he's running around the house. Oh, I, yeah, I know, absolutely. Yeah, yeah 100%. that made me laugh. Not That's laughing cool. at the topic. No, no, hand. it's fine. So like the, 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 the end result of this is by obliterating this stereotesis is that you open up all kinds of room for tinkering and experimentation now by this conserv- by this very um, clearly not moderate bench. Yeah. And secondly, you undermine faith in the fundamental court. You undermine faith in the legal system because the legal system can no longer be trusted to, ser- to serve you continuity from one generation to the next. The legal system can change like that. There's so a- essentially you reduce uh, the Supreme Court from a fairly removed technocratic entity into a partisan one. It's just the war of all against all of it. That's it. Well, that's what I was going to say, because there's actually a third thing. Like you, you've laid out the two things there. There's a third thing. The third thing is that the ruling, and this is not a direct effect, but it's a, a real one and it's a foreseeable one. This is accelerant dumped on the U.S. culture war because 100% now it is. Yes. everybody in the United States is going to absorb this and they're going to go, new rules, new rules, new game, new game. So I want to, this actually leads us to my second blur, but one point I just want to make first, and then we'll quickly move on here. Something, something that your original column about this, when the draft ruling came out, that you made an important point, which is that Roe v. Wade was probably always going to be overturned. You and I both support the effect of Roe v. Wade because we're both pro-choice. Roe v. Wade, though, was a bad ruling. Like it was it, it wasn't, legally it, vulnerable. It was a legally vulnerable ruling. Yeah. So that being said, after 50 years of precedent and follow-up precedents with Casey, it, it was established in tradition. Like, like is, the, yeah. the, the, the stare diseases doctrine should have protected it. This is not ripping it off a band-aid. This is like ripping out like a joint replacement. And yeah. this leads me to the third blurb. Mm-hmm. I'm I don't want to flog a dead horse. We, I've had my say about the RCMP. You've had your say about uh, the Roe v. Wade uh, death. And we're both going to have our blurbs in the dispatch. But there's one separate and related point I want to make that wraps up both of these things and a bunch of others. Are you ready for it? Oh. Shit going to get bonkers. We, it's already kind of bonkers. Oh, it's it? going to get worse now. Yeah, it's going to get way worse. And I do not believe in importing US culture wars into Canada. I think we are terrible at allowing that to happen. But one, we have stuff happening in Canada right now, where shit going to get bonkers. Mm. Like we're already looking at like bottoming out levels of institutional and societal trust. We're looking at fevered rhetoric. We're looking at rapid political polarization. And now we're about to drive up the costs of food and energy that is the kind of stuff that throughout history that has made societies lose their minds yeah take that take what's going to happen in the united states where they're dealing with food going up they're dealing with energy going up gasoline heating fuel everything like that plus everything we were just talking a minute ago with roe v wade you like if you thought the US was insane on Thursday morning, it's way worse now. And we have midterms coming Essentially up. Essentially, that we're, we're we're in the political version of war of all against all at this point. It, and this was this was the last the last thread in the in the 
in the system that held that held a lot of America together. So think of it like this, and I'm going to make the next comment neutrally. I, I've already said I'm pro-choice on on the substance of this issue. I am with the Democrats. But let me make a neutral comment here. This is political analysis. It's not moral conclusion. Think about what the next midterm election, which is only months away, and then the next presidential election is going to be now. Because the Republicans just won the biggest culture war battle of the last 50 years. And they've won mm -hmm. it decisively. Mm -hmm. like, I, like, I know people are like, oh, think about like the women and, and everything like that. Yeah, for sure. But just for a second, think about the politics. This is the biggest victory the Republicans have had as an institution or an ideology or a political vehicle in 50 years. They have decisively won the most divisive culture war issue. Now, the issue is not settled, but this is, can you think of a, bitter, a, a better po political victory than this in the last half century oh no and like we should also point out this has been a, a political victory that has been 50 years in the making there yep. has been a 50-year conspiracy well-documented conspiracy to do exactly this they the republicans having won this one they're not going to go home and declare it a solid day's work they're going to attack on 50 new fronts and they're going to have all the energy yep. and and zeal and passion to do it now here's the other side of the political analysis. And again, my my emotionally and intellectually, I'm with the Democrats on this one, but this is offered just purely neutrally. They're gonna fight the midterms and the next presidential election on existential terms. The midterm rallying cry is now save the women. The yeah, next and it it's not gonna whip work is the problem because the places the Democrats most need to win are actually most most iffy on abortion rights. I yep. mean, I mean, not universally, but that's that's something to explain. I mean, the, the real concern that I have is that if you fundamentally can't trust the rule of law and the legal system to remain relatively neutral and consistent, how, if you're California, are you incentivized to stay in the nation while Christian nationalists essentially are on the march, which is what's happening. Meanwhile, if you're in Texas, why do you want to be in a union with California? Well, yeah. Because California the, is going to be paying for your women to take a bus there and get an abortion. 100%. So, like, like, where's the, where's the incentive for unity here? Where's the incentive for, like, the, 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 the moderating principle that actually holds the union together? That, I've written this blurb already, just so that you know, and that's actually the point I end with here. I said the only thing that's going to hold us together in what's coming Oh, and by the way, while all of this is happening, the baby boomers are all retiring and need hip replacements in a healthcare system that is broken and the planet's getting warmer. Yeah, cool. Fine. So the only thing that's going to actually allow us as a society to hold together are strong institutions. Mm -hmm. First of all, we don't have them. No. Second of all, the ones we have are being just brutally eroded here. Just, I mean, we, to pick we, totally. We, we bottomed about them out um, uh, in COVID. Well, I mean, also, as I say, tongue in cheek in, in the blurb, just to pick one example of a vital societal institution, totally pulling this out of thin air, maybe the RCMP. That'd be one. <laughs> like, we are attacking our own immune system right as the wave of illness arrives. So basically, we've given ourselves societal aids. What we, <laughs> that's a grim thought, that, that thought's going to fester. So think about this. We can either, as societies, in a time of economic upheaval, 
literal war, accelerating climate change, demographic shift, and a global far-right populist resurgence. We as societies can confront these challenges collectively through functioning and cherished, well-preserved, and uh, well-treated institutions, or it's every man for himself. I would much rather it be the former starting about a year and a half ago, personally, and I know you're in a similar boat. We've both concluded it's going to be the latter mm -hmm. and we're preparing accordingly. So yeah. basically, I think people are going to, going to, are going to seriously regret the institutions that they've spent the last several years denigrating when they're gone. People should go back and read the statement we published the day we launched the line. It was not, us being right-wingers saying we need right-wing governance it was no. if we don't save the centrist moderating institutions it's going to be feudal warfare with every little segment of society being in a zero-sum war against every other sum game we launched the line almost exactly two years ago just about a week ago i went back and i read our opening statement again what's that saying holds up you know, it's it's interesting to me because it's it's uh, liberal democracies are really complicated and weird, and they result they they uh, rely a lot on spontaneous order in order to function. Um, but one of the things they also rely on is 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 mutual um, self interest, right? The reason why I don't engage in a zero sum game to screw your kids over is because my, that's actually not my interest in the way the system is, is structured. It's in my interest to, see to live your in a kids... system where your kids are not getting screwed over. Yeah, it, yeah, it's within my interest to ensure that your kids succeed as well as my kids, because really, I need all the kids to succeed as much as possible in order for the whole thing to function and get ahead. So therefore, I don't mind my tax dollars being um, taken taken to you know fund public schools that are good quality and that everybody can have access to and everyone can, can do it. That's, that's, that's in my interest in the long run, even though it doesn't seem like it's my individual interest. It's a system that encourages us to make individual sacrifices for the common wheel. And then we debate about exactly what types of sacrifices they should be and where the common wheel begins and ends. That's just a matter of policy. But you want to undermine that whole system and say public education is, is a system that actually only benefits one group of people and not others and should be abolished. Well, look, that's not going to hurt my kids. I can afford to put my kids in a private school. Yeah. You know, but you're, you're breaking down the, 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 the common contract, the common contract of, 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 of mutual self-interest. And there's only one way that goes. Shit be bonkers shit going to be bonkers so like i, I don't know and, and like, you can you can apply that to the, the supreme court of america like look look and the rcmp here yeah look everybody has a mutual interest in seeing the supreme court function function <laughs> yeah. and also apply the rule of law over and above the interests of individual judges over time like yeah. everybody has an interest in that but you destroy that interest and all of a sudden like you said new game now it's not about the rule of law anymore. Now it's about making sure that the right judges right. are in the right. Now it's about power. That's when it. it's not when it's not games played by consistently enforced rule, it's it's a power grab. It's all it is. And it's funny, you and I, re relatively affluent white people, like we're the ones warning everybody. Like if it becomes a zero sum game, you and I have a big head start, and we're still at, we're still begging people not to let that happen. You know, no. in, in, in I'm, 2020, I'm not, I'm not worried about the zero sum Hobbesian 
scenario, I have a big, strong husband. I've got two beautiful children. We've got a little money in the bank. Not much. We've got a little money in the bank and we've got our house. Like I'm fine. My kids are fine. Like I will survive in that scenario just fine. I will convert my garden into a big vegetable patch. Like, and I will come visit you from the independent city state of Toronto to hang out in the newly Western independent Western Republic of Alberta. Like, it'll be great. But like, that's not a good society. That's not a, I'm not leaving my kids a better society than the one I grew up in. That's not, that's actually that, that uh, my individual interest might be served by that, but my long-term legacy isn't. And that's what's fucked up about all of this. The privilege we will wield will be the privilege to protect our specific children from the dysfunction that is overtaking us. That's right. And it's the purest and and best privilege of all. And we'll move on early. I want to mention this early in 2020, I was talking to a, a legal scholar, Canadian legal scholar. I can't name him here. It was off the record. It was after George Floyd. Uh, in the United States. And it was during the kind of the height of the defund the police hysteria. This guy is not, he's a scholar. He's not particularly political. Like, I don't, I don't, he's not a culture warrior or anything like that. But he said to me, and he used blunt language. So forgive me. He said to me, if I raped your wife, you could do two things. You can set out to kill me and avenge your wife, or you can pick up the phone and call the police. And he goes, we don't appreciate how much of an act of faith it is when people pick up the phone and call the police. Mm-hmm. Because through the enormity of human history, indignities were handled on either a personal or a tribal level, right? Yeah. We fascinating create- reading on blood feuds, by the way, in traditional societies. We created institutions that after a devastating personal assault on my family and my traditional sense of masculinity and manhood, I would still call the police because I would trust them and the courts and society at large to do right by me. If we start to erode the fundamental underpinnings of society, which is security, fairness, personal autonomy, economic opportunity all of which currently are being eroded should be bonkers well i actually i mean side of the, i actually wrote about the history of how the, the how metropolitan not not militia based police which the rcp actually is but metropolitan based police yes um so well, the, the rcp are are light are light cavalry yeah, yeah, there's actually two separate origins here between like the, the origins of police as a, a gendarme force Talking and the, the origin Met. Yeah, and the London yep. Met, which is which is the traditional sort of um, metropolitan force, and like people aren't aware that prior to the creation of the London Met, rich people had police. They had private security. They had uh, I think they were called footrunners or something like that. They hired. They collectively pooled footrunners to essentially do policing in the rich communities. Mm-hmm. The people who didn't have police were poor people because <laughs> they couldn't afford it and therefore poor people were massively more likely to be robbed they're more likely to be assaulted they're more likely to be raped like it was if you were poor in london prior to the to, to the establishment of the met your life was not pleasant you had to have money in order in let met to have exist in anything resembling yeah and that's it money you had to you had to protect yourself and either yeah. on a family level individual yeah. level a neighborhood level the creation oh, no, of the I, Met was was a I huge social. I know, but the, I'm just yeah. telling the audience. Like, like the creation of the Met was 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 a was a huge social innovation, 
and they were explicitly not modeled after a military force. They 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 were distinguished they were, from from a mil, yeah. from a military force, and they were meant to be you know the the, the essentially um, uh, community policing. That that they was the whole idea. They were inherently non-military. They were inherently yep. non-military, and even their uniforms reflected that fact. Yep. And fact and actually they weren't one of, armed. And one of the things that is fucked up is the way modern polices have taken on military sort of roles and 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 and, like that is actually against the whole rationale that went into policing. This was never about a top down power, you know, it was about communities protecting themselves in a way that was an institution that was socially structured to actually allow equal protection for poor and rich and and. Policing has gone a long way from that in a lot of places. And I think that policing absolutely does welcome and should welcome reform. But people need to understand that history because like it wasn't all great prior to the creation of police. Trust me. Well, Jen, our expectations are a problem. That's true. We expect institutions to work. Yeah. And all of us grew up. I mean, I mean, other than people who might've come to Canada from abroad, but every, every born Canadian basically grew up in a society where exceptions notwithstanding black Canadians, indigenous Canadians, the overall societal expectation was that if someone rapes your wife, you pick up the phone and you call the police. If someone abducts your child, you call the investigators. You don't mount a posse and set out after the bastards in the next village you think did it. If someone screws you in a business contract, you file a lawsuit, you don't cut their hand off. This is this is all human history up until about 200 years ago. Yeah. Like people, our expectations are a problem because people do not realize that we live, like uh, the lives we have known historically, we're the anomaly. It 100%. feels normal to us because we're in the middle of it. Historically, yeah. we are the anomaly. Our expectations are a problem and shit be crazy. So, sorry, be bonkers, bonkers. We have one more blurb item, which is not actually, it's going to seem like a a big topic shift, but I actually think it's not. There is a identity battle being fought right now by one of those institutions we could talk about. Tell me what's going on at the Conservative Party of Canada. So this is a really interesting thing. So there's been a lot of chatter that uh, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, who's a, a conservative MP for Calgary Nose Hill, was essentially going to put her hat in the ring for the UCP leadership race. And if she did, I actually think there's a very good chance she could win it. Like she's 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 got high name recognition. She's got lists. She's got money. She's got all the things that she would need. And I think she also had a vision for like how to heal and get a dysfunctional caucus essentially on the same page. I actually think she had the right idea. So a lot of us were sitting around waiting. Is she going to do it? Is she not going to do it? Is she going to both pull the trigger? Isn't she? And it started to drag on a bit. Her lack of decision-making just dragged on a bit. And then there was a story in the Western Standard that apparently she had let her UCP membership lapse and uh, needed a special caucus waiver to essentially over, overlook that fact and allow her to run for, for leader. But of course, some, some members of the caucus aren't interested in having Michelle Garner run for leader, and I'm sure did everything possible to make that difficult for her. Sure. And in the process of that, and she wrote, she wrote all of this all, by the way, she, she wrote this big long screen explaining all of this and published it. So I'm not telling any tales out of school here, but um, in the process of this, she realized, holy shit, this caucus is a fucking disaster. And I don't, 
I only have one year to get this caucus basically working before the next election. And she just decided I can't do it. You know, like I can't, I don't, it's just, it's just, I can't actually make, I can't, I can win, but I can't cover. And so she had a really honest, you know, decision with herself. I think in the process, she probably has handed the province to the NDP um, because she's straight up admitted the stuff that we all knew was going on, but done said so in, pu- in, in public. And that is the UCP caucus is not functional. So you've been um, saying it in public. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and then, interestingly, another story came out in the Toronto Star. Stephanie Levitz, who is really good. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how closely you followed her stuff. I mean, I follow her stuff on general principles because she's a very mm-hmm. good reporter. Yeah. She's been very good on the conservative party beat in the last few years. The, she, yeah. she, she's, she's on top of her file. Basically, it came out that uh, several members of Rebels, Rebels called Rebel Garner's caucus have tried to reform act her out of the caucus. They tried to vote her out of the caucus, which would firstly explain why she wants to get the shit out. Firstly, it explains a lot of her support for Patrick Brown. Um, who is a more moderate member of that caucus, even if he is a bit of a creep. Um, and it also explains why Alberta was maybe looking real, real promising because essentially her caucus has gone nuts and wants to kick her out of the party. Now, Rumpel Garner is perhaps not, uh, isn't uh, a more radically right-wing member of that caucus. You know, she's pretty openly happy, the pro-gay, she's, pro, she's pro-choice, you know, she's She's been to the WEF yeah. and if, if I can, Jen, sorry to interrupt. Rempel Garner is someone I think is badly understood in Canadian yes, politics. I think that's right. Because yeah. her personal style, and it's not a criticism, it's just a, yeah. a comment, is bombastic. Yes. Her delivery, oh, yeah. her social media presence. Yeah. She's very uh um, over the top. And again, that's not a criticism, that's just an analysis. She is in your face with her politics, but the policies themselves have traditionally been pretty much within the moderate conservative mainstream like a red tory with an albertan twist yeah totally and like and then but because she's aggressive and in in people's faces and she's an opinionated woman like let's be blunt like sure yeah yeah like so i agree with you entirely she is policy well within the mainstream of what the conservative movement would have been five ten years ago People are freaked out by her because she's loud and opinionated and gets in people's faces. And I think that herself. causes people to think she's a radical. Policy-wise, she she's ain't. Not. Well, and I thought, but it's, 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 it, it, so anyway, the, the idea, the reason why I think all of this is significant um, is because, look, if, if Michelle Rempel was about to, was risking getting kicked out of the conservative caucus and then took one look at Alberta and was like, yeah, nope into the fucking sea. What does that tell you about the state of the Conservative Party? Right? Like it tells you that like relatively moderate, bombastic women can't find a home there. That's interesting to me. Um, this is all a pattern of what we've been writing about since O'Toole got. I mean, even God Jen, going back to the last federal election, yeah. we've been writing about what's happening in the Conservative Party. Yeah, it's it's the the, the purge. The purge is happening. Yep. Right. So, like, I, I'm not worried about Michelle Rempel-Garner. She will go off and do other interesting things. I, I suspect that if she stays in federal politics, she's going to stay in it as a kind of a bit of, a, of an iron major, which is just someone who can say whatever the hell she wants and will be and there I until I dare she, you to purge me. And I dare you to, exactly, I dare you yeah. to purge me. I think that's her role in federal politics. If she has no role in Alberta politics, that's, you know, whatever, can't blame her. It's the worst job. Kenny's job is now the worst job in Canadian politics, so... 
you know, fair on her, fair on her if she decides that this is not worth her time. Well, maybe but, tied with RCMP communications director, but yes. Right. But I mean, and then the other thing I would point out is like, she'll, she'll, if she decides to leave politics, she'll be fine. She'll go do other things. You know, yep. her, her husband's in, in Oklahoma, perhaps they'll move down there. Maybe they'll move up here. She'll, she'll find a job doing something else. I'm not worried about Michelle Rempel Garner. I do think it's interesting that if Michelle Rempel Garner can't find a place in the conservative movement, that says a lot to me about where the conservative movement's at. And it's not good. Say it with me, Jen. Shit be bonkers. Shit be bonkers. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a really uplifting dispatch. Um, I may also write about Obi Wan Kenobi just for fun. Can I give you advice? Yeah. Hold that a week. Really? Yes, for a reason. You don't want like a little palate cleanser? No, I hold it for our last dispatch before our vacation. All right. Give people as we head off a show something, to binge. Something. Okay. I've. I have Star Trek Strange New Worlds, two episodes left. For All Mankind just came back on Apple. Stranger Things, the final part of the season's coming up. Then I'm into Kenobi. I'm gonna. I'm not going to do the Kenobi weekly. I'm going to binge it once all the episodes are out, which I think That's they fair. are now, actually. I do. Th okay, maybe we'll just hold that, hold that off for like one final, like, you know, uh, uh, sci-fi nerd blurb. As, and then boom, we're on vacation. Then like, boom, we're we, on vacation. We publish the dispatch and we beam up. So yeah, totally. Well, I, I'm gonna do my last my last summer column, last good summer column. I think that should be our last column before we go on vacation. Okay. And then the dispatch, yeah. Okay. Well, well, that was very uplifting. Should be bonkers. Thanks, everybody. Take good care. Well, that was very cheerful and uplifting, I'm sure, for all of you. A big conversation after a big week in the news. This is Matt Gurney for The Line. Until next time, folks, take good care. And please, if you haven't already, subscribe today.